This is a two-parter podcast on Bishop George Bell. Bishop Bell was Bishop of Chichester in the Church of England during World War II, and this first podcast is uh, focuses on Bishop Bell's speech that he made on the 9th of February, 1944, in the House of Lords. The second podcast, which will be titled Bishop Bell, The Play, discusses this character of George Bell in a uh, play by a Swiss dramatist that was produced in 1967, in which the bishop uh, has an extraordinary fictional but emotionally, ideologically, personally true encounter with the Prime Minister Winston Churchill over the question of uh, a war crime and the question of conscience. You can find out a great deal about Bell, who's a very well-known and well-documented and remarkable uh, figure in the 20th century history of England by looking in any number of sites and any number of biographies. The place to start for purposes of this would be to go to the House of Lords website and look up the Bell exhibition, which I believe was in 2008, and there you'll hear about a read about and see about an exhibition of Bell's pictures and documents uh, relevant to an anniversary of the speech he made in 1944. This beautiful exhibit, which was uh, put together just yards from where Bell himself made the famous speech and which was opened by the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, with with a couple of the very few people still living who knew Bell in person and were almost contemporaries of his, younger contemporaries, uh, that look there and then click on to the speech itself, which is from the Hansard. I've only got the original Hansard here, which is the like the congressional, um, you know, the congressional uh, uh, register. Uh, I uh, have it printed out, but there it is printed out as well on that website. And then you can look up Bell of pictures and portraits and so forth of Bell uh, and uh, discussions of his life. But I'm focusing here on the speech he made. Bell uh, was uh, 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 an extraordinarily uh, well-equipped young man who found himself at the epicenter of uh, cultural life and Christian uh, tumult in the years following World War I when he served as chaplain to Archbishop of Canterbury, Randall Davidson. And Bell's two-volume book, um, uh, life of uh, life and Le- life and leavings of uh, Randall Davidson is a remarkable collection of documents and commentary and accuracy relevant to Davidson's uh, very interesting um, uh, centering uh, uh, at that point in English and European history. And then Bell was preferred, as the word in the church is, uh, um, given a promotion to be the Dean of Canterbury Cathedral, where he served and is most famous now for his patronage of the arts, where his patronage of patronage of uh, uh, T.S. Eliot produced the play Murder in the Cathedral, which was the first great play of Eliot's, which culminated later in the cocktail party of the family reunion, the elder statesman and the uh, confidential clerk, and um, The Rock, and uh, his uh, Bell's uh, patronage of Dorothy Sayers and uh, patronage of uh, Gustav Holst. Uh, we know him as the composer of The Planets, and Hans Feibusch, who's much better known in England, a, a German emigre uh, from Hitler who was sheltered by Bell and sponsored by Bell, whose uh, paintings are now a major uh, pride of the old churches of Sussex, etc., etc. In that period, he became patron of the arts. Then when he was preferred to Chichester and became the bishop, he became not only the great friend and protector of thousands of uh, of those fleeing from 
Hitler, he was able to bring a great many of them in. If any of them had kind of Christian baptism, he could bring anyone who was of uh, uh, Jewish ancestry into uh, from Germany into England. But he also looked the other way. He A number of people got baptized or got Christian papers just to get out, which is absolutely the way it ought to be. And Bell uh, turned a blind eye and because he was uh, so concerned about these poor people who he felt were friendless. And as early as 1933, he'd written a poem. He'd called the question on uh, Hitler's anti-Semitism. He was the first major establishment figure in England who blew the whistle on Adolf Hitler. So he was a man of tremendous perception and insight and deep Christian mercy and compassion. After the war, because of what I'm going to talk about now, he was put out to pasture. He was never preferred again. Initially, he was to, he was not uh, appointed to London. Then he was not appointed to York. And then upon the death of, uh, of uh, the famous William Temple in October of 44, he was not appointed to Canterbury, all because he was understood to be unsafe. That is to say, you couldn't handle him. George Bell could not be handled. And he had proven this time and time again with his heroic stands. He was not a... a, 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 a a loose cannon whatsoever. He was extremely astute, wise, and and, and full of... Uh, he could control himself as well as anyone, but on a couple of issues, he was willing to be counted and therefore was uncontrollable and uh, from the standpoint of the establishment and did not get the great appointment which a person of his unique capabilities, experience, wisdom, and education and background in Christian life uh, ought to have promised him. And so he ended his days uh, basically going to strawberry festivals and um, uh, rummage sales and confirmations and weddings and funerals in the Diocese of Chichester. He died in 1958. Now, the speech, however, is one of the high points of witness uh, of its kind in the 20th century because in this particular situation, one man stood up and said something which no one in else in his position could say, and I mean no one. What was happening was that uh, uh, the uh, bomber command uh, was uh, taking upon itself with the strong uh, uh, engineering of Winston Churchill and the war cabinet to do carpet bombing of British cities in the name of destroying military and industrial car, uh, um, uh, centers, they were in fact um, bombing thousands and thousands and thousands, ultimately millions of German civilians who were left behind by all their men who were at the front. The, the, these cities were not a theater of war. They were legitimate military targets to the extent that they had military actions being supported through them or in them. But what began to happen is that the British became so angry at the blitz that Hitler had unleashed on on. Uh, British uh, cities that they uh, threw in much worse than they got and were in a very bloody-minded, revengeful, harsh way, they decided to really cream and destroy the German will to go on. And in a way, as Bell pointed out, it was a form of terroristic bombing because you bomb the, the innocent survivors or the civilians, usually women, children, and retirees, seniors who were left behind in these places, while all the young men and the war, um, the ability to defend themselves had fled. And so although these cities had some um, had some anti-aircraft batteries. There was no air force at this point left to de defend these people. So the bombing became an action of terror to destroy the civilian populace and demoralize, therefore, all the fathers and husbands who were at the front. It was a morale tactic that um, was effective in its way, although it actually just increased the, the ferocity of the demonic uh, fanaticism of Hitler and his inner circle, and it was not successful. But um, um, 
Bell understood this and uh, was shocked by the British government's policy of systematically uh, bombing people he regarded as defenseless. Now, Lindbergh had always said that the delivery of lethal payloads from the air would create a kind of war that was very, very wrong because you could sit way up in the clouds, drop your bombs, go home, and never see the human torches of five-year-old tow-headed boys and their mothers being uh, burned to death as cinders in this uh, horrendous inferno, which was almost entirely confined to the people on the ground who were civilians. So a pilot could go home, a courageous pilot, and we Bell never took away from the courage of the RAF flyers, bombers, and pilots, but they um, uh, would never have a an an unmediated contact or picture of the people that they had killed. And Lindbergh and many others knew that this would create a different kind of warfare, a far less personal one, and the re- possibility of doing horrendous acts of of. Uh, of, of terror without having to see them would make it ever so much easier to do these things. And that was, uh, that was uh, the underlying concern that Bishop Bell had. And he blew the whistle on the policy of obliteration, carpet, or area bombing, as it was called, of the German cities. And on the 9th of February, uh, 1944, he made the speech. Now, I want to get right into it. This is, uh, as I said, from the Hansard, uh, which I have before me, or Congressional Record, as we would call it, the Congressional Record of the House of Lords. Uh, The bishop uh, stands up, and initially he says... If long-sustained and public opposition to Hitler and the Nazis since 1933 is any credential, I would humbly claim to be one of the most convinced and consistent anti-Nazis in Great Britain. Now, the bishop was referring here to the fact that, as I said earlier, he was the first high-profile English public official to speak out against the anti-Semitism of the Nazis and the might-makes-right philosophy that underlay national socialism. Uh, So no one could accuse him of being soft on Germany or soft on Nazism or in any way some kind of a crypto-sympathizer. He went on to point out that on May the 10th, 1940, the government had publicly proclaimed an intention to exercise the distinction between military and non-military objectives in the bombing of Germany. He uh, believed that the government had gone back on its word, partly out of out of sheer pique and human revenge desire, based upon the um, the attacks upon uh, British cities, and including the Baedeker raids, in which some of the beautiful cities, like Coventry, where the cathedral was destroyed, for example, and uh, Canterbury were so damaged. And uh, he understood that there was a revenge going on. And he had no sympathy with it, although he understood it. Uh, but he said, we're going too far. We're now ending up killing infant. I mean, a vast larger number of civilians than were killed by these raids. And he then said something very uh, touching to me. He says, it is a common experience in the history of warfare that actions taken in war as military necessities are often supported at the time by a class of arguments which, after the war is over, people find are arguments to which they never should have listened. Now that's a characteristically English way of putting it. We have this today. There was, after 9-11, but nobody wants to talk about these things ever. People just want to sort of move on and pretend these things never happened. But I remember that very soon after 9-11, there was a bloody-minded... Um, 
a commentator on, I think it was the Fox News Channel, who was, he, he, he made right-wing or conservative commentators on Fox News Today look like um, Daniel Ellsberg. He was unbelievably saber-rattling and mean and angry and determined to really off these terrorists so we can understand the, the tremendous anger of Americans at the uh, atrocity of 9-11. That's not to take away that for a second, but there was a character. I think it went on for three or four months. He was so harsh and so angry and so impossibly uh, malicious. In, and, and, and as I said, the old expression is bloody-minded in his expressions about our antagonists and enemies at the time. That It's unbelievable. I mean, it was something you'd, you'd be shocked if you saw it today. He was taken off after about five or six months, and I don't remember the name, but it was, it was really appalling. And uh, um, when People today, uh, if they um, would look back upon how we have so become inured to the idea that uh, targeted assassination from the air using drone aircraft, which are manned by people sitting in front of computer screens thousands of miles away, the unfairness of this, the titanic unfairness, the lack of what used to be called just a fair fight, the helplessness of those on the ground, whether they are supposed combatants or not, um, is just beyond uh, anything that's ever been done by this country ever. Things have always been done in war, clandestine things that were dreadful and horrible that people didn't want to speak about, never did. But to make them into policy that we all know is going on, that is new. And the same would go towards uh, this, you know, a CIA agent is supposed to have shot and killed two people on a street in, in uh, Lahore recently, who I'm sure were what we today call bad guys. But uh, extrajudicial execution is not in the spirit of the American Bill of Rights or the American Declaration of Independence of the Constitution. And this would have brought down within hours, presidents, uh, days, uh, presidents in times past. But now it seems normal. And uh, Bell reveals that uh, even such a thing as uh, 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 this the face in the face of Nazis and combatants uh, was something that later on people would not want to talk about. This principle comes out. He then quoted a number of the uh, of the people like Arthur Harris, the famous commander of Bomber Command, who's a controversial figure now, but a hero then, and a very um, inexorable um, planner and uh, expediter and um, protagonist of the carpet bombing strategy. He tries to uh, say, Bishop Bell, that these are not really in keeping with the ideals of this country. He talks about the shocking facts that in uh, Hamburg and Berlin in uh, the uh, early days of the bombing of Germany, thousands and thousands and thousands of women and children and what we today call seniors had been killed. He talks about the bombing of Lübeck, Rostock, and Cologne, some of which were uh, military targets, but the vast number of those killed were what we today called innocent civilians. He then asks for an exemption by Bomber Command of some of the provincial historic cities, such as Dresden and Augsburg. He mentions Regensburg, Hildesheim, and Marburg, but he mentions, he says, uh, certainly Dresden Augsburg and Munich must be on the list, and he pleads that they would be exempted from the list. Now, we know what happened to Dresden, and we know today there are apologists for the Dresden raid, which claim that it was a railway terminus that had uh, strategical value for the Wehrmacht. That may have been true in theory, but it wasn't true in practice. In practice, I've been to Dresden. God knows. I've been all over it backwards and forwards with Mary. This is old territory to me, too. And it was a railway terminus, in fact, 
for thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, women and children fleeing uh, the um, uh, Russian army who were believed and who in fact did carry out a systematic campaign of humiliating rape among women of uh, 11 to 80 and also um, were just appalling to all they met. Um, and that's a separate question, but it was a terminus, but a terminus at this point only to confused thousands of uh, of men, uh, of women and small children. And uh, we know that the Bomber Command didn't listen to um, Bishop Bell. Now, he then uh, says that, are we trying to justify methods inhumane in themselves by arguments of expediency? Does this not, he says, smack of the Nazi philosophy that might is right? And then at the conclusion of the speech, and I want to get to the conclusion, and say something about this speech. This focus uh, is on George Bell, the speech. This was the great moment of his life. As it turned out, he had written a letter to the Times in 1941 complaining. He had written, he wrote further letters after this speech, and he was known, uh, he was hated by journalists. Interestingly enough, journalists often go the way the wind goes. They may be ideologically one way or another um, in um, ideological terms, but journalists also, just like the internet news services, has a way of going where the culture goes. It is not as if it's an independent voice in practice and you would have you would have thought that he would have been defended by the op-ed columnists of the papers in that day at least the guardian and he wasn't he was systematically hounded by the press um pilloried as being pro-german and hounded by every single leader of the establishment at that time there may have been many voices who quietly believed in his voice of conscience but none of them spoke up and he was harried and, of course, his future in the Church of England was dead. Now, at the end of his, uh, his um, discussion of the kind of, uh, by the way, they used what we used in Vietnam. They, they used phosphorus uh, as opposed to napalm. They used, uh, this, is, this never changes. These, these uh, situations in war, they go from Vietnam, they go from 1944 over Dresden, they go from uh, uh, eastern Pakistan with uh, drone bombers. Uh, the tools are used to do the job, but to do the job thoroughly. And they are monstrous tools, and they're never seen by the tool makers and the tool deliveries. And that's the heart of the trouble with this kind of warfare. But I read the conclusion of what I regard as a kind of Gettysburg Address, or more a regard uh, as a kind of a uh, second inaugural of President Lincoln, and I leave you with these words and then a brief comment. He continued, Why is there this blindness to the psychological side? Why is there this inability to reckon with the moral and spiritual facts? Why is there this forgetfulness of the ideals by which our cause is inspired? How can the war cabinet fail to see that this progressive devastation of cities is threatening the roots of civilization? How can they be blind to the harvest of even fiercer warring and desolation to which the present destruction will inevitably lead when the members of the war cabinet have long passed to their rest? How can they fail to realize that this is not the way to curb military aggression and end war? This is an extraordinarily solemn moment. What we do in war, which after all lasts a comparatively short time, affects the whole character of peace, which covers a much longer period. 
the sufferings of Europe brought about by the demoniac cruelty of Hitler and his Nazis, and hardly imaginable to those in this country for the last five years, we have not been out of this island or had intimate associations with Hitler's victims. These sufferings are not to be healed by the use of power only, power exclusive and power unlimited. The Allies stand for something greater than power. The chief name inscribed in our banner is law. It is of supreme importance that we, who with our allies are the liberators of Europe, should so use power that it is always under the control of law. It is because the bombing of enemy towns, this area bombing, raises this issue of power, unlimited and exclusive, that such immense important is bound, importance is bound to attach to the policy and action of His Majesty's government. I beg to move. Now, in the event, up jumped a colleague in the Lords who immediately took on short and sweet and with tremendous feeling, who immediately took on the Bishop of Chichester's speech and utterly disagreed and reflected the overwhelming mind of the House. And then came a kind of incredible anticlimax from Cosmo Lang. Remember the Archbishop of Canterbury in the King's Speech, played by Derek Jacobi so unctuously? Well, Archbishop Lang had, uh, had uh, retired and was now a retired peer in the House of Lords, and classic for Lang felt that he had to somehow cover his uh, erring colleague's prophetic passionate word by kind of a pandering to to other things so that somehow the church might get off the hook and they wouldn't all blame the church for Bell's passionate prophetic statement of compassion towards the civilian victims of the bombing and uh, the uh, passionate uh, demarcation of limits and bombing from the air. And Cosmo Lang came in with a, uh, with a speech that is almost as long as it can be, and it just completely let the air out of the tire. It was so wrong and so appalling and so self-serving, or at least serving of an identity of himself with the, with the position of the church, that it, it was a really, uh, you know, the world ends with a whimper, as uh, Bell's friend T.S. Eliot wrote. And here we have this dramatic and now very historic moment ending with a whimper as Lord Lang immediately jumps up. Lord Lang. Cosmo Lang. My lord, let me say at once that in the few remarks of which I shall trouble your lordships, I do not intend to follow the speech of the Bishop of Chichester, because I should be sorry, whether by agreement or by criticism, in any way to diminish the effect of its courage, sincerity, and impressiveness. I must content myself with one or two quite general observations. And then he basically uh, takes, the, takes the carpet from under everything that Bell has said, and said, well, I'm sure Bell was referring more to a certain kind of atmosphere truculence, which is not suitable to a Christian nation, not the actual thing we're doing. Now, Bell was talking about stop bombing people who you're killing who are five years old or 75 years old and turning them into human torches burning to death in front of their mothers or their children or their grandchildren. And then he says, of course, we accept the destruction of military objectives and of their immediate neighborhood as a regrettable military necessity. I mean, this thing is so Terrible. And then he says, the lex talionis is one of the oldest and most primitive instincts of mankind. We cannot be surprised that it rises in strength in the hearts of those who have lost homes and lives which they loved. Though indeed, I must add, it is not among them, but among people more comfortably placed from whom we hear most of this rather savage language. 
War, as the right reverend prelate, that is Chichester Bell, truly said, is fertile of every kind of evil. And then after this, just appallingly... Um, awful personal attempt to speak out of both sides of your mouth with some misguided and misconceived desire to protect the church from its own best voice, which is George K.A. Bell. He says, uh, I hope you will not think I have been uh, wasting your time in these few minutes if I have ventured to utter such a warning about our uh, the real moral danger of a particular form of savagery uh, that uh, perhaps may be an outcropping of some of the da 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 and uh, um, uh, uh, you know, then he sits down. I hope you will not think I've been wasting your time in these few minutes. Well, he gave a very long speech, completely destroyed the uh, feeling and emotion of this Gettysburg Address. I'm sure Lincoln felt the same way when he delivered his speech at Gettysburg at the great National Day of Mourning for the Dead. And uh, afterwards, of course, comes in the Cylons, Viscount, Cram Viscount Cramborn, who was at the time the Secretary of State for Dominion Affairs, got up and in a lengthy way countered Bell's speech and basically said in his own very cultured manner, um, you're wrong, Bishop, and we're not going to change no matter what you say because we're determined to uh, to finish with this policy which we believe will win the war. And Bell himself concluded the debate with a tiny little tag when he said, I, I find this disappointing and perhaps even unsatisfactory, uh, but I withdraw my motion. Now, that's the story of the speech of uh, George K.A. Bell. I'm going to talk tomorrow about a play that was written in, 19, in the 1960s which dramatized this great event in a most uh, intriguing and powerful manner. Uh, but today I would just uh, like to say that the fundamental uh, issue here was um, the ability to blind yourself to atrocities which appear to be in the cause of justice, which your urgent desire to get back at the enemy, based upon a just desire for striking back, uh, causes people to adopt, and which later they're ashamed to talk about. I uh, had a, a wonderful woman in a parish once who came to me during Operation Desert storm and she related to me some correspondence she'd had from her son. Her son was an Air Force pilot flying long distance missions during Operation Desert Storm <clears throat> over what was called the crack I think they were called the Imperial Brigade or something like that or something along those lines or the Immortals or something of Saddam Hussein in Iraq and he uh, by the way they turned out to be just a bunch of scared guys in their underpants running around uh, with blue helmets and unloaded rifles <laughs> and on practice ranges. I mean the so-called crack troops that we were all our embedded journalists kept saying we should fear turned out to be a lot of guys in their underwear who surrendered, who ran so quickly to surrender that it was beyond belief they would be so treated better by the Americans than they were in their own functionally empty uh, canteens. Um, but uh, a lot of them had been killed by our bombs and this man wrote his mother, who was a member of our Episcopal parish somewhere, that mom, I often wonder what I'm doing here. I'm 30,000, 40,000, 30,000 feet in the air and I'm delivering these massive bombs, and I have this very strong suspicion that I'm responsible personally when I pull the trigger, as it were, in the cockpit of, uh, of being responsible directly for the death of thousands of, of men defenseless way in the ground who cannot even pop a cork uh, towards my plane they can't even see. And I feel that I've probably uh, killed uh, many, many people, and I just can't do this. I just don't know what to say. What, is, what does Paul think about this? And I gave my view, but you know, as Bell said, none of us takes away from the bravery, skill, and courage and the uh, tremendous commitment of the RAF pilots and a man such as I'm 
talking about, but the result of their uh, unseeing blind uh, did efforts above was to result in the killing of thousands of defenseless people. And uh, later on, someone involved in this war in uh, Afghanistan and uh, eastern Pakistan uh, was so upset, uh, a pilot, that he... Um, took a hit in his career, a major hit, by refusing to have a second tour running these big uh, bombers and these drones because his conscience was getting to him for what had have, have happened and over which, in a way, given the fortunes of chance, he could have so little control because he was so far away from seeing it. And he said, I just can't go on. And he left it. I wish there were many more stories of such people. Bell himself says in the play that British um, soldiers are all protected by a certain article of war uh, by a uh, from obeying orders that they are plainly criminal. And uh, regardless of what you think of, uh, of carpet bombing or of drone bombing or of unmanned aircraft and missiles or targeted assassinations by ours or any other government, um, which we're not really hearing much about that. People are so um, now indifferent or seemingly completely hard to what only a few years ago was considered the ultimate of like shooting somebody in the back or shooting somebody who's completely unable to return, uh, shooting a man in a duel before you get the before you get the 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 the, the number is called, so both people have a chance. Uh, this is the this is the bottom of the barrel, uh, and yet now is regarded as un unquestioning, and I can't believe it. But Bell, this one man spoke. Um, people will say, oh, well, that was different. He was defending uh, uh, civilian populations as over against military targets. Well, that's not how it was seen then. In the same way that I might criticize drone aircraft, and everyone looks at me uncomprehending. Well, don't you see? We don't get, by using drone aircraft, none of our guys get in the line of fire. Well, that's the point. But you can't say it, because... Uh, no one will believe you, but at the time, something that seems obvious to us, like the, like the decision to destroy thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, civilians in uh, Dresden, which could only result in that because everyone knew what the situation was there. The, the German authorities felt they must be protected because they had all these civilians far from it. But at the time, everybody, uh-huh. Well, why not? I mean, look what they did to us. Those, they're all criminals anyway. These are these dreadful people. Kill them anyway. Look what they've done to us. No one questioned it then. There were no exhibits in the House of Lords in 1945 in response to what George Bell had done. Everywhere he went, it was quite the opposite. He was a pariah in the church. He was pariah in the country. He was a pariah in his diocese. Everywhere he went, he was in the papers especially and on the radio, he was regarded with, with absolute distaste for his great, uh, what is now regarded as the only public protest against the uh, killing, for whatever reason, of defenseless and innocent civilians in their many, many thousands. Now, um, somebody said not long ago, I think it's the former, the Bishop of uh, Norwich, who's, or Ely, uh, who's now deceased, a wonderful man, I think his name was Peter Walker. He said, you know, we all need heroes. Uh, we need heroes in war and we need heroes in faith. And we, we shouldn't have to have heroes because we shouldn't be able to do it ourselves. But we need heroes. And they're really very few. The Christian church has produced in recent times much more likely people who are craven and cowardly and cover up and are 
constantly think they're protecting something which turns out to be unprotectable and they would have been protecting the church far more to prosecute or to to blow the whistle but they thought misguidedly they were protecting well it's very rare that the uh, church produces a figure at the level at which uh, George Bell was operating to to blow the whistle and blow it firmly and blow it with tremendous conviction and grace and charity always underlying that he was not a prophet he said I, he, he hated it when people said he was a prophet he said if there's anything going on here it's it's a it's a conviction that only mercy and compassion drives us to a view of war that will ultimately undo these these unjust uh, and truly cruel policies. Uh, that was his uh, point. He used to carry in his pocket, I'm told, pictures of dead people in Hamburg, dead women and dead children that had been secreted to him through his anti-Nazi church colleagues who he had a remarkably uh, the ability to be in contact with in uh, fascist Germany. He had the ability to get some letters out for a variety of different conduits and saw pictures and articles of what had happened. And here he, he would bring out and show to um, someone like some of the people he knew in the defense establishment and show them this is what it's producing. And people, of course, didn't want to see. They didn't want to see. He was uh, holding things in his pocket that no one could look at without shame and appalled horror. And of course, now we know. Now we know what the result of this was. And one day we'll know through the intransigent hatred of all things American that will uh, prevent any kind of real reconciliation for two generations in the Middle East, especially in Pakistan and in, uh, in Afghanistan. We will, we will soon know the cost of this kind of activity from the air against people who cannot possibly in a million years do anything but, but wave a scimitar or uh, an old rifle over their heads uh, way too far away and nobody in them anyway to do anything. No wonder that people facing this this kind of tactic would be tempted to, to, their anger would be so great that they'd be tempted to blow themselves up in what they thought was the service of revenge and, and fighting back. Well, that's uh, my story and the story of this great hero, uh, Bishop Bell, who uh, later on remained quietly the uh, gentle uh, pastoral bishop of the Diocese of Chichester, which until relatively recent times was rural and was, like Hampshire, the home of a kind of Jane Austen country life, which produced this most amazing, timely, and unique witness to uh, what the way of the world thinks is de rigueur. Thank you for listening and God bless.